Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Idel Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in. And the Mclemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the T this week. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I am very excited about tonight's show, but even more excited and grateful, oh, by the way, that you have voted Next on the T and Thursday Night Tailgate into back-to-back positions, numbers five and six, in the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list for the May edition. I am so appreciative of your support. Thank you so much for going online and voting. And please continue to do so. You can vote daily by going to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. The top three have been there for a while. So let's get them looking over their shoulder. Let's get next on the T and Thursday night tailgate up into that top three. Again, you can vote daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. Okay. On to tonight's show. My first guest is going to be one of the top photographers anywhere on the planet. And that's Evan Schiller. I'm sure you've seen Evan's great work all over social media. He shares his wonderful pictures with us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, just about anywhere you can go. You're going to see these great images from golf courses around the world. If you haven't seen them for some reason, go online to evanschillerphotography.com. And Schiller is spelled S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R. So evanschillerphotography.com. His pictures are going to knock your socks off. Tonight, I'm going to talk to Evan about his college days at the University of Miami, the year that was in 1986. Evan played in the U.S. Open that year. We'll talk about more stories of the historic golf courses that he's had a chance to photograph, plus maybe some that he hasn't gotten to yet are on his bucket list, plus a whole lot more when Evan joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from one of the top instructors in the game, and that's Dave Stockton, Jr., Dave is known for being a putting guru, so we'll definitely get some tips to help us all improve our putting. We'll also go back to his days on the PGA Tour, especially his win at the 1993 Connecticut Open and his tied for third finish at the 1994 Greater Hartford Open. What was it about Connecticut that helped him play so well? We'll also hear about his battles against Greg Norman and playing with our friend Dottie Pepper at the 1995 J.C. Penny Classic. Looking forward to having Dave back on the show. He'll join me about 20 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a return visit from Dr. Bern Bernacki. Bern is the president of the Golf Heritage Society. He's also doing great work up in my hometown of Pittsburgh with the first tee. We'll talk about that, plus some of the historic golf courses around Western Pennsylvania that he gets to be a part of on a regular basis. We'll hear about those courses, plus the booming golf memorabilia industry. Looking forward to having Burn back on the show. He'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. Then we're going to round it out with a return visit from Megan Yonkman. Megan is a top 50 LPGA instructor and the head of golf instruction at Beth Page State Park. 
We're going to hear some of Megan's favorite stories of people like us that think we can take on Beth Page Black and how far they get before the course has beaten them to a pulp. We'll also get some playing lessons for how we can correct our slice off the tee, hit better chip shots, and a whole lot more when Megan joins me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. My buddies and I were there last year for our annual golf trip, and it was so amazing. We're counting down the days until we get to go back again this year, a little bit later on this month. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service, and the course lived up to every great expectation that we had for it. Can't say enough great things about it, folks. Go online to themaclemore.com to see how spectacular the place is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, and our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000, and then Lynx Magazine recently doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about it by going online to themaclemore.com. And a special shout out to our friend Jerry Weaver up there at Macklemore. Jerry, thank you so much. He did a great job of getting everything aligned for us from our stay to our golf arranged and everything is going to come off perfectly thanks to Jerry. Jerry, you're much appreciated. We look forward to catching up with you when we're there in a couple of weeks. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf's an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made the all-new Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cap-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance throughout the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, Try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. All right, now back in next on the tee with me is Evan Schiller. If you're not familiar, like I say, with Evan's work as a photographer, you need to go check out his website, evanschillerphotography.com. And I mean this sincerely, folks, and not just because he's my next guest, but because it's both true and, on top of being a great guy, it's the reason I've asked him to come back on the show a couple of times now. He's just the best photographer on the planet, no other way to say it. But before we all grew to love his photography work, he played college golf at the University of Miami, where in the 1981-82 season, he helped the team to a third-place finish in the Andy Bean Classic, a fourth-place finish in the Furman Invitational, another fourth-place finish in the Southeast Invitational, and in the all-or-nothing tournament at Athens Country Club, they finished fifth and earned a berth in the National Championship Tournament at Pinehurst, where they finished 10th. They had another strong team in 1983, and Evan helped them finish second at the FIU Sunshine Invitational. He qualified to play in events on the PGA Tour from 1984 to 1988, including the 1986 U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills. Evan has now photographed over 600 championship golf courses worldwide, and I'm looking at his calendar hanging right here on the wall, folks, and I'm honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Evan, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate being here. Really great. <laughs> I appreciate you, my friend. 
<laughs> Evan, like I mentioned in your intro, Darren right at your calendar here on the wall in my studio. Having photographed 600 plus championship courses around the world, how do you decide which 12 pictures you're going to include in the calendar? <laughs> uh, wow. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. It's always tough to narrow it down to 12. Um, I generally like to take some of the more recent ones I've shot. You know, there's, there's always moments during the year where, you know, I go shoot a course and I'll go back, you know, to my hotel room or after other days done and I'll look through the images and I'll go, okay, that one looks like a, that one looks calendar worthy. Um, so I, I create this folder, ongoing folder throughout the year of, you know, images that I think would be calendar worthy. And then, you know, when it comes, comes time to start putting it together, which is getting, getting to that time, um, I try, I try to pick a variety, you know, from around the country, you know, overseas, some. So I don't know. There's no, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no method. I just pick what I like and it kind of, you know, develops from there. There are definitely some that I shot, you know, I shoot throughout the year. Where I go, okay, this one's in the calendar. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm imagining, you know, you've got, you're going along through the year. You know, a shot might have made it all the way through to November, and all of a sudden you take a really great one in December. Now, now suddenly that that photo doesn't make the cut. It's got to be tough. <laughs> made it all the way through exactly. and missed it at the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody came in late today with a good round. You missed the cut. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And Evan, knowing that you've taken pictures for the Master's Journal for many years, of course, when I get the calendar, I immediately flip to April looking to see, well, which, which one of Augusta National pictures is going to be for the month of April. And, and, um, that's it, not there. Is that a thing for Augusta National that the pictures that you take for them are exclusively theirs and you're not allowed to post those in, in any other places? Pretty much. Yeah. That's, you know, they, um, when I go there, they, you sign this release and a contract that basically the photos you take here are their property. Uh, that's the deal. They're pretty protective um, about all the images that are taken on property. I mean, obviously, it's a little different now with cell phones and such. They can't really. I mean, I know you're allowed cell phones during the practice round, but there's no cell phones during the tournament. So there's not a lot they can do about that. But, you know, as far as people publishing them for commercial use, that's a different story. Right. They're pretty sure that. When you get to go on property at Augusta National, do you get the full treatment? Do you, like, do you drive up Magnolia Lane and, and do all of those sorts of things? What's that like? No, sir. <laughs> no? No uh, Magnolia Lane? Well, you don't go up Magnolia Lane, although I did once when I got to play. Um, there's a there's a media entrance, um, and there's a special media parking. And, you know, now there's a, there's a whole new media building, which is amazing. So... Yeah, there's a media parking where you go in there, and it's the entrance is, you know, just down the street from the main entrance, but not a lot of people get to go in through Magnolia Lane during the tournament. You know, it's pretty much players and special guests, I guess. But um, one year I did get to play after the tournament. They have a lottery every year, media, you know, writers, uh, photographers, TV people, and you put your name into the hat, so to speak, um, box. And then I think on Sunday before, you know, Sunday of the Masters, they draw out, I don't know how many names, 40 or 50, um, maybe not even that many. And you get to play on Monday. And they leave the course set up the same way it was on Sunday. 
So my name got picked one day, and you get this little card. You know, it's like a little invitation to go play on Monday. You you get to go in through the main gate. You drive down Magnolia Lane. You get a locker in the champions' locker room. Wow. Um, you know, you get to eat. You know, you get to eat breakfast and lunch in the cha- you know in the dining room or the champions' locker room. So that that was kind of cool. By the way, the champions' yeah. locker. Room. No. Yeah. Take us behind the scenes. What's that like? It's not that big. <laughs> um, I had uh, Jose Maria Olafabo's locker, which was right next to Tiger's locker. Uh, yeah, you go in there, you get to put your stuff in the locker, change your shoes, get something to eat upstairs in the dining room, you go to the range, hit some balls. Uh, yeah, you pretty much, you're basically a member for a day, is how it is, essentially. You know, Evan, yeah. I've had the privilege of, walking those grounds and being at Augusta National, mostly during a practice round, a couple of tournament proper rounds, but you've yep. been all over the property. I mean, you've walked across uh, the, the Hogan Bridge and you've been all, all all back in places that none of us really get to do or see. What's it like to be in places that none of us have ever been and always dream we could go? Uh, well, it was pretty cool. You know, you get to see, you get to be, you know, and you know, some of the spots that they have the cameras that maybe you can only see on TV, like back by the 13th tee. Um, actually, I got a tour with their uh, agronomist um, one day during a tournament. I forgot what year it was. But so he took me all around. He took me behind, you know, behind the 12th green, behind the 13th tee, took me everywhere, showed me all that, took me into the maintenance building, which is amazing, by the way. I mean, they have all the technology, their computers. And, um, in fact, we were on the back of the 13th. It was during a practice round. We were back of the 13th tee. Uh, Mickelson happened to be playing 12 and 13. So we actually, I sat on the wall behind the 13th tee and watched him hit tee shots. Wow. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah. So, um, th- it's a very cool place. Very interesting. The maintenance facility is just off the charts. And that was a bunch of years ago. I'm sure it's upgraded now. Evan, let's go back they- into your career as a player, going back to your college days. We've talked a little bit about this in the past, but University of Miami has a has a rich golf history. Several friends of the show, people like Terry Hashimoto is a great friend and a Squares ambassador. He played at Miami before you got there. Yep. Uh, my my yep. good friend Cindy Miller, who's going to be back on the show here in a couple of weeks, she played there. Missy Bertiotti was at the University mm-hmm. of Miami the same time, I believe, that you were there. Talk yep. about the rich history at uh, at Miami. Uh, well, it's, um, you know, they, they don't have a golf team anymore, a men's golf team, um, cause they, cause of Title IX, they stopped it a number of years ago. But, uh, yeah, there was, um, there was some, you know, some good players that came out of there. Woody Austin, probably the most notable, you know, now in the, the, um, Champions Tour, he was, you know, probably the best player to come out of there, I would say. Um, you know, Nathaniel Crosby won the U.S. Amateur. Um, so he had a pretty, you know, pretty nice amateur career. Um, you know, it was, it was an interesting group. We had some fun, you know, some great trips, uh, you know, that stretch, you know, from when I was there, maybe the number of years after there was some, there were some good players who came through. Um, they had a good stretch, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm not familiar how it was before that, but then, you know, they, because of Title IX, I believe that the golf team was, you know, the men's golf team anyway was taken away. And I 
to my knowledge, it hasn't come back, which is unfortunate. But, uh, yeah, there was some good years. Evan, 1986 is one of the great years in, in golf history. We all remember yeah. Jack Nicholas coming out of hibernation to win the Masters. You played in the 86 U.S. Open that Raymond Floyd won. Talk about your memories of being a part of one of the great U.S. Opens in history. Um, well, uh, after I got over the, the ner- you know, the, it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun, and you know, it was nerve wracking. Um, I uh, a friend of mine had a house out there just down the street from Shinnecock, not too far from the water, and uh, he let me stay at the house, which was kind of nice because getting a place out there was rather difficult and not. Uh, not inexpensive, you know how the Hamptons are. Um, so we, he, I basically had the house for myself for most of the week, and then I had, you know, my friend of mine caddied for me. He came out, <clears throat> stayed in the house, and uh, which was only a few minutes down the road from the from the course. My parents, you know, my parents came out, had some friends come out over the weekend. Uh, unfortunately, I missed the cut, but I do remember, you know, a few of my friends had qualified well, so that was. Um, you know, practice rounds with them. There was one particular round, and I don't remember what he got on the first tee, and the guys I play, was playing with hit off, and I was, and just before I was on the tee, um, Tremino and Norman walked onto, and as you know, Norman led every major that year to the last round. I mean, I, he won, I think he won the, the, uh, the British Open, it was called the British Open, and woke up on the tee, and you could just feel it. Them, you know, they got their arms crossed or leaning on the, leaning on their clubs, looking at us, going, "Guys, right?" <laughs> and, and walked up really close behind me. Uh, it was, you know, hey, kind of like a hey, get out of our way kind of thing. Um, and my <laughs> friends are they laughing, and I hit, and one of them said, "Dude, that was your U.S. Open right there. You could hit that shot. You could hit any shot." <laughs> No doubt. Uh, yeah. It, so it was fun. You know, I you know, I took my dad into the locker room and around the clubhouse and you know uh, he had a blast. <laughs> I think he had more fun than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and and Evan, speaking of Greg Norman, talk about you know, you're right. That year for him was a year of what could have been. I mean, he could have won the Grand Slam if uh, he yep. didn't uh have some problems in final rounds. But what was it yep. like being around Greg, particularly at that time? Well, there was two instances during that week where I, you know, it's not like I, not like I talked to the guy, um, but two instances where it was that. And then there was another one. On, I went out there early uh, on Sunday, and I went out Sunday morning to play a practice round, and um, it was really foggy. And I went out to the range, and I grabbed my bag of brand new tight lifts and take them out in the range I was hitting them and as I'm hitting balls I hear this noise somebody hitting a golf ball like I had never heard before it was this thud like what who is that <laughs> and I turned around and it's Norman hitting ball it's only two of us me and him right behind hit ball I don't know he's maybe 10 feet behind me and the noise that his ball made, I had never heard anybody hit a golf ball like that. Um, and then, I don't know, a few minutes later, another guy comes out of the fog from the other direction, and it's Nicholas. So I got wow. Norman on one side, 
Nicholas on the other side, they're both, you know, like 10 feet, maybe 10, 15 feet on either side of me because they were going out to play practice. Those are two of the probably most memorable stories of the my U.S. Open. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Is that the only time that um, you got to be around Mr. Nicholas? Did you run into him at all over the, whether it was during your playing days or certainly you photographed a bunch of his, you know, golf course designs? Yeah. Have you gotten to spend any time with him? His son, J- Jackie, um, Jackie Jr. was in college when I, he was at North Carolina when I was playing at Miami and we had played together a few times. So I kind of got to know him. And, uh, you know, he was catting for Jack, uh, at that, at the U.S. Open there. And so we ran into each other and, you know, we were, I forgot where it was, might have been a locker room. He said, uh, hey, here's my dad. He introduced me to him. He goes, here's my dad, Jack. I went, really? (laughs) Um, you don't say. That was about, I forgot to, you know, be around him or talk to him, but it was pretty brief. He was kind of on his, you know, heading out. Evan, so, let's let's talk about some of the iconic courses that you've taken photographs at. And Royal County Down, I read, is one of your favorite courses, and is one of you know one of the courses on all of our bucket list. Talk about yeah. why you love that course so much, and uh, some of the things that you learned about the course when you've been there. Well, the first time I played it was, it was a bunch of years ago. I was um, I was actually I worked as an assistant professional at Quaker Ridge for a number of years and I went over to Ireland. It's actually my first trip to Ireland. We played in Pro Am at Bally Bunyan and um a friend of mine was gonna after the you know, after the event was gonna come over and meet me and then we were gonna go play some courses. We didn't know what or where. We were just gonna get in the car and go and somebody says, you know, because I really love Bally Bunyan so and somebody said, if you like this place, you gotta take a trip up north to Royal County Down, which I wasn't really that familiar with at the time. He goes, that place. He goes, if you like this, you're going to love that place because he thought it was way better. So after the event, got in the car and drove across the country, and uh, we got there late. We played a late afternoon round and then a morning round. Uh, stayed in a little bed and breakfast, and it was, I loved the place. That, you know, from the minute I set foot on it, I thought, this is the greatest golf course I've ever seen. I don't know that I'd ever seen a golf course like this with these huge mounds and dunes and, you know, the, uh, the, the heather, the grass, you know, on the, you know, the fescue all over the place. I just, it was like, wow, look at this place. Uh, and we happened to catch it on a really good day. And, you know, after that, we went up and played Port Rush, which I also love, but I just, from that moment on, I just, I just love. Royal County down. I mean, I remember playing the ninth hole. We were with a caddy and you know, the ninth hole you hit up over the hill. You can't, it's a blind tee shot. And he says, well, aim for that rock. So I hit it and the ball goes right over the rock. I said, okay, whatever. I don't know. And you walk up, come over the crest of the hill and you look down and you see the water to your left. You see the first hole and you see this ninth hole heading to the, to the clubhouse. And then there's the, um, and the mountains of Morn in the distance, um, and the Sleeve Donard Hotel is also there. It's just it's like, wow, look at this. Uh, so that that memory, as you can tell, is very vivid with me to this day. And I've been back a, a couple times since um, to photograph and then play it. it to me, it's I, the best golf course I've ever seen. You've also photographed another course, on, it's certainly on my bucket list, and that's Old Head. 
Their uh, head of marketing, yeah. Brent Dornford, has come on the show a few times. Sure. What were your impressions of Old Head? I haven't been down to, uh, you know, Cape Kidnappers or uh, Ari Cliffs yet, which also, but it's the most spectacular setting for golf I've ever seen. Um, you know, you have this, uh, basically this precipice that sticks, sticks out into the water almost two miles. The lighthouse at Old Head is almost two miles out into the water. So you're playing golf. You're literally, you know, anywhere from, I would guess, you know, three quarters of a mile, to almost two miles out into the ocean. That's up on these cliffs that are, I don't know how high they are, 200 feet, 250 feet at, at times. Um, the setting is just, it's off the charts. Uh, and not only that, but the, I mean, it's like a wildlife preserve with all the birds and the different kinds of plants that are out there that, yeah, I think, you know, they have birds and plants out there. They don't have anywhere else. Um, so it's a, uh, it's quite the experience, especially, you know, if you they have accommodation to, if you, you know, stay there as well, which I did, but it's, uh, there's not too many places like it. You know, you know, you walk along these cliffs and you look down and, you know, there's rocks and the cliffs and the ocean crashing against the, you know, these holes that run, you know, roll on the cliffs and you're just looking, going, in awe of this place. Um, and if you catch it on a nice day, uh, I mean, because you can get some pretty nasty days out there. If you catch it on a nice day, that's just a bonus. And what it looks like recently, based on what I was seeing on uh, some of your social media pages, you've been out to mm -hmm. uh, Baltus Roll, which is another one of the iconic courses in our game here in the U.S. Talk about walking yeah. those grounds. Uh, well, you know, they recently, uh, Gil Hans just, uh, restored it to, you know, I, I know he, um, well, I played Qualta for a number of times, uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, I always liked the course. I mean, it, it was always a, you know, it's, it's a big, long golf course. Um, but it never had, you know, like Wingfoot, Quaker Ridge always had the feel of a tilling house course. To me, Qualta for didn't have the feel of a tilling house course until Gil Hans just restored it. And now, I mean, it's, it's spectacular. It really has a look and feel of a tilling house course. And what I understand is he worked off some old plans, some old aerial shots to restore the bunkers, the fairway lines. You know, the clubhouse is just, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful, iconic clubhouses in the country. Uh, you know, so when you walk up that 18th hole, you see the clubhouse sit on top of the hill there. Pretty neat place. And, uh, yeah, Gil did a great job. You know, the bunkers look really Wonderful now, especially the um, the Sahara bunker complex they have on 17, um, which is he restored. And um, I'm probably going to head back there at some point this spring or summer. So you know, I'm sure it's grown in a bunch since I was there last year. Uh, so you know, the re the, the re restoration has probably matured some. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. I remember being there in 1980 when Jack Nichols won the U.S. Open. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You were on the ground? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was there. When, uh, he coming down the last few holes. I was there. I was actually lying. I remember running down the fairway. There was so many people there. Everybody's yelling. Everybody's going crazy. Jack, you know, because he hadn't won anything in a while. And, you know, he went down the stretch against Aoki. And I remember all these people, and they were around the 18th green, and I, I couldn't get near it. I couldn't see my brother. And I, so I remember crawling, <laughs> crawling on, on the ground. I mean, look, you know. I wasn't that old crawling under people's legs to get 
<laughs> so I could see. And they were like, what are you doing? I crawled through people's legs between Ellis' side, lying on the ground. I didn't even know what I was doing, where I was going to be. I ended up coming like, as he was lying up his putt, he was looking, you know, right in my direction. So when he made that last putt, it was actually coming right at me, you know, and then he, you know, raised the putter like he does. Everybody went, you know, crazy. Evan, one more before I let you go. Are there still courses out there? I mean, again, 600 plus championship golf courses that you photograph. Are there still ones out there that you're trying to get to? I would love to go down to the sand belt in uh, Australia to, you know, shoot some of the courses, play, shoot some of the courses down there, like Royal Melbourne. There's so many down there. Also, New Zealand to get to, you know, uh, Tower ED and Cape Kidnappers, uh, Curry Cliffs. There's a number down there. You know, King Island, I want to get down there. Uh, and in the States, I would love to get to Sand Hills out in Nebraska. To me, it might be Corbin Crenshaw's best course. It might be, you know, one of the, if not the best, you know, one of the best modern-day designs ever. I haven't been up to Kohler yet. I uh, would love to get up there. That's just off the top of my head. One, I, you know, I would love to get to at some point. Evan, before sure I let up. you go. Sure. No, go ahead and finish your thought. Yeah, no, that was it. Those are the ones that come to mind. Evan, before I let you go, remind our listeners again how they can go online, get one of your photographs, stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, and follow you on social media as well. Uh, well, the, the website, as you said, is evanschillerphotography.com. There's all kinds of information you can you know, you can watch videos, you can purchase prints. If you want to just look at photos, you can go there. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff. And I'm always, I'm going to be adding, I'm always adding stuff. Uh, social media, I'm on, I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. I'm probably most active on Instagram. It's basically, Evan Schiller Photography, you could find me. Um, yeah, I'm pretty active just about every day. It's also, I mean, a lot of people communicate with me via Instagram. Um, and I always enjoy that and just enjoy, you know, chatting with my followers and having conversations and getting people's feedback. So that's always kind of fun. So, yeah, I'm pretty active there. So you can always find me there. Or Evan, you, know, you can reach me, website, whatever. Yeah. Evan, it's always a lot of fun having you as part of the show. So many great stories, so many great experiences. And on top of that, so many great photographs. I can't thank you enough for well, taking time out of your busy schedule to come and uh, be a part oh, yeah. of the show again. I enjoy spending time with you. Well, thank you. I do, too. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You guys take do, care, you my guys friend. Great job. All right. Thanks. See you, Evan. Bye. That is the great Evan Schiller. Again, EvanSchillerPhotography.com is the site. S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R, and Evan is E-V-A-N, so it's not E-N, it's A-N. EvanSchillerPhotography.com is the site. And, folks, you got to follow him. Follow him on Instagram, follow him on Twitter, follow him on, on LinkedIn. Like he said, he is active every day. He's always posting his great pictures. And it's just a wonder to watch and see what, what the next uh, great one is going to be in the calendar. Fantastic. Again, I'm looking at it right here on my wall. So you get 12 great ones there. But you're going to get one just about every day of the year, like Evan says. And uh, you're going to shake your head. You're going to go, oh, my God, I can't believe how beautiful that is. I can't believe what great lighting he used to get these you know, images. How does he do it? It's just it's a wonder. 
He's a great photographer and a great guy, and I look forward to having him back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Dave Stockton Jr., I want to talk to you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now back in making his 11th appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is Dave Stockton Jr. Let me remind you about Dave's background. He's from Redlands, California. Like his father and his grandfather, he was an All-American golfer at the University of Southern California. He joined the Corn Ferry Tour in 1993 and won twice during his rookie season there at the Connecticut Open and the Hawkeye Open. He went through Q School in 1994 and earned his tour card. He finished inside the top 100 on the PGA Tour money list that year. From 1993 to 2006, he had six top 10 finishes on the Corn Ferry Tour and 13 top 10s on the PGA Tour. Following his days on tour, he spent a couple of years as a commentator for the USA Network. He's now one of the top instructors on the planet, and I'm excited to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dave, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Chris. Uh, How are you? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you, my friend. Dave, before we get started, our mutual good friend Keith Hirschland commented on a Uh Facebook promo that I did that he wanted me to ask you about the time you tormented him at the bar during the Corn Ferry Tour Championship back in 2002. You guys were in Alabama during Game 6 of the 2002 World (laughs) Series. What happened then? (laughs) You know, it's so long ago, but I know that it's between the Dodgers and the Giants. We both, uh, and tonight the Dodgers and Giants are playing again, uh, Dodger Stadium. But, uh, yeah, he, he, you know, he's a Giants guy. I'm a Dodger guy. And, uh, we had a friendly ribbing back and forth. And, and, uh, I think we actually, we still do to this day. So, uh, we know where our allegiances are and, uh, we, uh, we keep it civil. Just put it that way. <laughs> Dave, I know you're a busy guy. You're doing a lot of things. Catch us up. What's been going on with you so far in 22? Well, uh, yeah, you know, I'm just, it's all about evolving and changing as you, as you, uh, learn this life that we live. And, uh, uh, my wife and I, we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona in September of last year and, uh, got my real estate license here in Arizona. And I'm with Russ Lyon Sotheby's and, uh, out of the Desert Mountain office. Uh, Still teaching, still doing that, still doing the 
the greens with back nine greens around the country and even outside the country. And, um, and, uh, just this week I got my real estate license in Idaho. And so now my summers are going to be in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is, which is a pretty nice contrast between Scottsdale eight months out of the year and four months up there in, uh, in Coeur d'Alene and, uh, going to be at, uh, CDA National Reserve, which is a, uh, private course up there that, um, Actually, a guy that I helped with his game, he bought the course and wanted me to come in as a director of instruction and, and sell real estate there. So I started studying again and got my license. And so I'll be doing both up there. And uh, we we opened May 20th. So it's going to be May 20th through September uh, uh, teaching and selling there. And then come back to Scottsdale in October. Wow. So that's fantastic. Good for the folks up in that area. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a neat spot. It's a great Weisskopf track, and uh, it opened in '08. Uh, it was a different name, and um, they uh, obviously '08 was a bad time to open a golf course or do anything business wise, and um, kind of sat there for a while. And he bought it last year, and uh, doing a lot of good stuff up there. And uh, it's going to be a fantastic uh, club to be at. Dave, switching gears a little bit. I saw a recent post that you put out on Twitter where it was asked if anyone had played a nearly perfect golf course and the writer talked about it being at Muirfield. You responded with Friars Head in New York. Talk about why you love that mm-hmm. golf course. Oh my gosh. Uh, that, that Crenshaw core did a heck of a job on that one. And I have a friend, lucky enough to have a friend who's a member there. And, um, he invited me out to, I played it, uh, about four or five times now and played in a member pro member pro event that he had there last year, uh, late last summer. And, and I just, it's all walking. There's, you know, no carts, which is great unless you have a medical reason. Um, and the layout's just fantastic. And uh, there's not a bad hole. And then you, you know, you come to the 18th hole and you're looking at that beautiful clubhouse they built, you know, it's just, uh, it's a spectacular setting and there's no homes on the golf course. I mean, it's, it's a pretty enjoyable walk, put it that way. Dave, I want to take you back into your playing career to the 1993 Connecticut New Haven Open. We have a wonderful <laughs> relationship with Tony Reno, who is the head football coach at uh, Yale University. And, and that event was okay. played on the Yale golf course back then, which is a McDonald yep. Rainer design golf magazine rates it as the top college golf course in the country and they're getting ready to celebrate Mm -hmm. their 100th birthday out there but talk about what you remember about the tournament and playing on that golf course yeah it you know just a classic old school golf course and uh some some quirky holes some blind shots um and just a, a a great layout i the thing that that sticks out for me before the tournament even started which i still laugh at is um, I wasn't in the pro-am on Wednesday, so I had Wednesday open and had a friend of mine who at the time was an assistant pro at Wingfoot. And he said, hey, if you're not in the pro-am, come out. We'll play Wingfoot West and play the West course. And, and uh, it's in great shape, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to come out there, you know. And so I go out there and, it's you know, perfect condition, not a blade of grass out of place. And I shot the prettiest 77 you've ever seen. And I called my dad that <laughs> night. and I called my dad and I told him I was going to play Wingfoot. Of course, he played the 
they, he played the U.S. Open there when it was the was the massacre at Wingfoot or whatever they called it. Um, when I think Hale Irwin won that one, but uh, uh, he said, "How'd you play?" Oh, I played better than I scored. He said, what did you shoot? I said, 77. He said, 77? He said, what's, what's going on? I said, I actually hit it really good. Just a, I got it in some spots you don't want to be, and I, you know, paid the price. And I was telling him, I'm really, I feel good this week. I'm hitting it good, even though I shot 77 today. And, uh, you know, of course, going to the tournament, and, you know, I win by a shot. Uh, I do, I don't remember a lot of shots during the tournament, but one I do remember is the 71st hole. Uh, I made a 60-foot putt, take a one-shot lead, made a birdie putt from uh, 60 feet. I was on the front, the pin was in the back, and and that gave me a one-shot lead with one to go and made a four, four-footer, four-and-a-half-footer in the last hole for par to win. And uh, that was kind of a, you know, wow, I – you know, I belong out here. I, you know, and I started the year conditional status because I, you know, I hadn't, uh, I didn't play well at the finals of Q school in 92, which were at the Woodlands in Texas. And, um, so I had a conditional card. I couldn't get any events. I finally Monday qualified for about the seventh event of the year after missing the first six. And, um, I'm, it was right the week before they did the reshuffle and I, Made twelve hundred and forty dollars or something like that, and that reach that money got me in the reshuffle up where I got in every week. And just a couple of weeks later, I won that event, and I thought, oh, I'm off the races, great. And then I went miscut, miscut, and uh, brings you back down. And then I went to the Iowa Hawkeye Open at Finkbine, um, which is Iowa's uh, home club, and um, University of Iowa's home club, and uh, uh, I was tied for the lead going into the final round with Mike Heinen, who obviously was a good player. He won the, I think he won the Houston Open, went on tour, and, but we were both grinding it out in 93. And I remember we teed off on one, we both hit it down the middle, and he, and he jokingly said to me, he says, you know, you already got one of these. He says, let me get one. I said, play hard, buddy. <laughs> and I just, I, I had the mindset because of the confidence of winning three weeks earlier. Uh, it wasn't a, in my mind. It wasn't a question of if I was going to win that one by how many. And you know, winning breeds confidence. And I I shot 66 and won by four. And the hole looked about the size of a trash can. And and um, and so I I had two top tens that year. Uh, in uh 12 in 22 events I played in, I made 11 cuts, missed 11 cuts, and two top tens were both wins. And uh, got me exempt to finals at Q school, which were in La Quinta, PJ West. And, um, obviously playing with some confidence. And I went into that with a little different mindset mentally after knowing what I did wrong the year before at finals. Um, I was so consumed with what scores were each day and what I had to do to what, what took, what made it there three years earlier. Cause back then Q school was Florida, Texas, California. Florida, Texas, California, and they rotated, and so it was California's turn, and I I made a commitment to myself that um, I wasn't going to look at scores, and I didn't care what anybody else shot. I was going to look at the end of six days and see what, where it stood, and my goal was to win the event, and um, I did. Um, 
and that's what got me on tour for 94 my rookie year and uh, you know who knows if I'd have that rookie year where I had uh, two thirds and an eighth actually the eighth was at international in Colorado and I I uh, had the I birdied four holes in a row in the back nine to to uh, tie for the lead going into 17 on Sunday and hit the car path on the right side of the fairway and disappeared into a a forest but I don't think the ball's been found actually we found <laughs> it but it was so dark and it was so bad down in there I mean I, I ended up making a seven and you know finish eighth in the event and, um, and obviously Hartford was uh, the one I had a good chance to win after being in the lead after Friday and Saturday and I finished third you can't shoot 71 or two on Sunday I shot 71 or two and I got lapped uh, by uh, uh who won? David Frost won. Greg Norman was second, and then, right. and then, and then '95, I finished second again at Hartford to to Greg Norman, Fuzzy Zeller, and I tied. But uh, I know there was something in the water in Connecticut. Everybody come there. Yeah, and I was wondering. Were always great. But I know something about. I finished second, third, sixth, eighth, eleventh in that event over the years, and you know, I wish I'd have won it. it Would have been great because my dad won that event when it was. Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, Cannon Greater Hartford Open, but uh, you know uh, it, it, it is what it is. I had a I had fun. I was the, I was a I was what they would call what you would call a journeyman playing out there because you know you got to win to get some security. And the only thing I got good at was getting through Q school because I got through finals four times after I you know figure out how to do it. And uh, but you don't really want to keep going back to Q school. It get it grows on you after a while. Um, and uh, once my kids were, you know, five and two, I was on the road 36 six weeks a year and missing a lot of things that, that were they were doing. And it just golf wasn't fun anymore. And it was a it was an easy decision for me and and one that I I have never had a day of regret when I left at 37 years old. Um, I was I was done. I wanted to change it up and do something else. And I've always, you know, prided myself on you know, making changes. I get more, far more enjoyment on helping people with their golf games or, or, uh, you know, designing a really cool green that we put in with back nine greens in someone's backyard. And, um, and now with the real estate side of things, I mean, I enjoy, I bring happiness to other people and that's, that gives me joy. So it's, it's fun. I, I feel like I, I'm living my best life, which is what we all strive to do. Dave, I want to get into some of that, but I, one other question from your time out on tour. You, uh, yeah. you finished tied for fifth along with, uh, your partner, Dottie Pepper at the JC Penny Classic. Um, was it fifth? I thought we were you, third. I've been saying all along, all the, all the, all the whole time. <laughs> I don't know. The, the tour media guide said fifth. Maybe it was third. Who knows? Um, but okay. you guys actually uh, shot the round of the tournament. Can you guys combine for a 62 in the third round, but, Dottie's a great friend. Uh, I, I enjoy spending time with her a lot. Talk about yeah. getting the partner with her in that event. <laughs> well, there was some funny stuff. So I'm a rookie on tour in 94, and obviously Dottie in 94 was one of the dominant uh, women on the LPGA tour. And, you know, she, I, for me, you know, I, the year's a long year, and, you know, the mixed teams in Florida, and it's like, yeah, you know, I don't like going and playing and that i live in california and this is in florida and take a week off and and dotty normally played with dan forsman 
and Forsman was injured and couldn't play and and uh Piddler uh Pid uh Dottie's caddy um or actually caddy for Dottie or he was maybe he was he was Forsman's caddy but they were talking and she she told him to ask me if I'd want, like to play with her and I mean obviously I'm going to go play with Dottie because we could win the tournament and I was like, "Oh, she's taking a chance with a rookie. This is this is kind of cool." And so I said, "Absolutely, yeah, let's do it." And I remember there was some funny stuff, but I I show up at the you know everybody stayed at the Innisbrook Hotel there on site, and I get to my room and and uh, there's a message on my phone from her saying, "Hey, when you get in, I'm in room such and such. Um, uh, come on down, have a beer or two, and watch the football game. Get to know each other." You know, if we're going to be partners that week. I said, cool. So I unpacked. I go down to her room, knock on the door, and I hear dog barking. There's two, ch- she has two chows that she traveled with, two big chows. And one was black and one was, one was a blonde, yellow. And Furman and Shank were the two dogs. <laughs> and obviously Furman, because she went to Furman University right. and Shank, just because funny. I don't know. I don't remember which one it was, but I'm sitting there. The dogs are kind of looking at me, and she hands me a beer, and we're talking. And I'm looking at this one dog. It doesn't look right. I finally realize the dog doesn't have any teeth. There's no. It's all gum. And and I finally I I weighed about halfway through the beer, and I kind of weird to bring this up, but I'm like, uh, Dottie, a uh, a question for you. What happened to your dog's teeth? And she said, Oh, that's a funny. Yeah, she showed me her calf, and on her calf there's a scar. And she said, "Yeah, I came home one one day or one night, and and the alarm went off, and the dog was sleeping by the door, and the dog jumped up and bit me in the leg. It was like a knee jerk reaction. And so I took the dog to the vet, and the vet said that dogs only chew with their back molars, so I had the front teeth all taken out. And I I just. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, "Wow!" I said, "Partner," I said, "Partner, if if I pissed you off this week, just don't don't hurt me. Don't don't do anything that's going to hurt me." You know? I mean, I was twenty four. I'm twenty five year old rookie. I'm like, that was intimidating, right? And she, you know, and then and then during the tournament, I just one of the funniest ones was uh, we're on the ninth hole on Sunday, and it's alternate shot, and she hit the tee shot, and I hit a I had hit an eight iron. I remember into the green it was about 10 feet right underneath the hole uphill inside the hole putt and i'm over she's kneeled down and i'm over her shoulder looking at the putt she says i think i'm going to be sick and i said i'm like oh my god partner you okay what, what's going on she goes no no she just stands to me she goes i'm just really nervous and i thought and it was really a i was like i was like wow here's dotty saying my time to, to say hey Get your, you know what, together. I, I said, uh, said, partner, you've made a million of these. Bury this thing in the hole and let's go to ten. She goes, okay. She got up there and she poured it right in the hole like the champion she is. So it was cool, um, fun playing with her, and uh, you know we had a chance to win, but uh, we just came up a little short. But um, um, and that's probably more on me than her because if she had a a uh, better partner, maybe she would have won the event. <laughs> but I I enjoyed it. It was the it was the one time I played in the event. 
you know, I, I think they should have that at event again. I think, um, if they had even a, a, I mean, I know there's so many tournaments now. That's the one thing is, is tough is uh, this wraparound season, events all over the place. I used to enjoy November and December off. Um, and you don't have that now. Now, if you take time off in the fall, you start the West Coast and guys have already played four, five, six events, seven of, I mean, it's crazy. So, you know, you, you just got to pick and choose where you get your breaks. So I don't know where they find, you know, fit an event in like that, but, um, it was a neat event. And I think that, you know, it'd be something that people might get into seeing again if they could ever find a week that worked. Dave, one more before I let you go. And I got to get a putting lesson from you because too often my buddies and I are completely wrong with how we read the greens and how we read the break. What should we be looking at and how can we go about doing a better job of reading the line and making more putts? Sure. Um, well, one of the problems with a lot of golf today, a lot of players today, is they ride in carts. Okay. So if you're not walking, if you're riding, you typically park on the side of a green or behind a green. You never park in front. And typically, greens are sloped back to front. And, you know, when you're walking and playing and you walk up on the front of a green, you can get a really good feel. Greens don't run away from you, typically. They're, they're sloped towards the fairway. And it's always important to, when you're walking on a green, realize where the lowest point is on the green. Um, it might be to the left, it might be to the right, it might be in front. And then in relation to where your ball is in the hole, always look at, if I pour, I always, if you have a green that's tough to tell which way it's breaking, there's always an outlet, meaning for if it rains, where would water drain off the screen? Where would water drain between my ball and the hole? And that'll give you a better understanding of which way a putt's going to break. Um, and, and, Walking on from the front of the green makes it a lot easier, but when you're walking on from behind, um, it wouldn't hurt to go down below more towards the front and walk up and get a better idea. Because if you're walking on the high side, it's like reading a putt from the high side. So a putt's breaking left to right, and you walk around on the left side and look at it, it's not going to look like it breaks very much. But if you go to the right side and look at it, everything's coming towards you. So you get a much better understanding. And going to the high side, I always say like this. I mean, if you go to the high side and look at a putt, that makes as much sense as tilting a book or a magazine or a paper away from you and reading it. It's not that easy. So right. always go to the low side. Dave, before I let you go, remind our listeners, you talked about it at the, at the beginning, but how can we stay up to mm-hmm. date with all the great things you're doing? How can we follow you on social media and, uh, and get an idea of where where Dave Stockton Jr. is going to be? Yeah, well, I'm I'm on predominantly uh, Twitter and Instagram, and uh, I enjoy interacting with people on on mainly on Twitter. Um, but I'm I'm at uh, DSJR1 on Twitter, and uh, and Instagram I'm David B Stockton, and uh, it's I enjoy it. Um, it's a lot of fun. Those are the two. I'm on LinkedIn too, not as much, but I'm on it. Um, and uh, just I enjoy the interaction. I love, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put too much stuff out there where people are like, oh, he's blabbing again or something. But you know, I know I'll have a bunch of stuff from, I'll have a bunch of stuff this summer, and 
Uh, got a gun, fun fishing trip with my dad and my son up to British Columbia in July, and I'll be posting stuff from that for sure for salmon and halibut. And, uh, you know, just, uh, just enjoying life and enjoying family and friends. Well, Dave, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. Always enjoy getting to spend time with you. You're a lot of fun, my friend. I hope you come back and do it again soon. I will, Chris. I, I can't believe it's been 11 times, and I always enjoy being on your show and appreciate you and everything you do, and thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Sounds good. You too. Bye-bye. That's a great Dave Stockton Jr., folks. Great. He had a great uh, uh, run out on the PGA Tour at the Corn Ferry Tour and then on the regular tour. A lot of great experiences that you heard uh, some of those tonight, and now it's just sought after as one of the putting gurus out there that uh, is helping a lot of people around the greens from a, from a short game perspective. And then when you get on the green, there's just nobody better than he and his father at helping you read greens and make more putts. So look forward to having Dave back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Dr. Bern Bernacki, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections with fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies, and their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields sports stores, all PGA Tour superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R.com. Two Under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXTT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the Two Under website. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret the pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus four technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play plus four and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip Golf Pride. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Dr. Bern Bernacki. Let me give you some background on Bern. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He went to Central Catholic High School, which has one of the best high school football programs in the country. It's where Dan Marino went to high school. One of our favorites over on the football side on our show Thursday Night Tailgate. Steelers play-by-play announcer Bill Hillgrove went there, as did another former NFL quarterback, Mark Bulger just to name a few of the great athletes that come out of that high school. Byrne earned his college degree in biology from the University of Pittsburgh. He's a primary care physician there in the city and a board member of the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative. He is also co-vice president of the First Tee of Pittsburgh and president of the Golf Heritage Society, and I'm honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Byrne, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Chris. I'm very excited to be with you again. I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you. Bern, it's it's been a minute since we got to have you on the show. You joined me last year as well, but catch us up. What's going on with you so far here in 22? 
You know, the Golf Heritage Society is uh, really on fire. We had a wonderful convention in Pittsburgh after after COVID broke. Everybody was a little nervous, but we did everything smart and right, and we had a good turnout. We visited uh, Latrobe Country Club uh, for our competitive uh, program. It was really good. We had a tremendous uh, educational and fun program. We learned a lot. We socialized. It was really good. So now we're getting back into visitations and gatherings and uh, some trade shows. So we have a um, convention coming up in the fall in Indianapolis. That's exciting. But we're invited to come back to La Trobe uh, in the end of June. And we had such a good time. And the Palmer family came out. And Doc Giffen uh, and some of Arnold Palmer's old pals came out. Uh, it was wonderful. So. Going back there again is really an honor for us, and uh, it, it's open uh, to the uh, our, our membership, but also folks who uh, want to come out and be with us and see how we roll. So that'll be June 27th. So we're making sort of a, a weekend swing out in that general direction. So there's there's a lot going on. Yeah, we're having fun. Vernon hasn't been all that long since the last snowstorm up there in Pittsburgh, which is odd to say now that we've turned the calendar to May. Have you gotten out and been able to play yet? I have. Uh, I've uh, had some real fun times um, playing at Edgewood, my home course, which is a Donald Ross. And, you know, uh, things don't change. You hit that ball and it's just a little bit short and it Donald Rosses you, comes back to you and you got to chip it up with a with an interesting pitch shot. So, yeah, I've been out there. Uh, I had a real fun time up at Foxburg. I'm very excited about Foxburg 1887. It's a nine-hole track, an hour north of Pittsburgh, and we're engaging in a preservation effort. The Golf Heritage Society is a 1,000% behind that effort. It's the oldest golf course in the U.S. in continuous existence. It needs a little work. It needs a little love. It needs a little donation. So uh, some uh, organizations such as ours uh, are putting together uh, uh, their list of uh uh, interested people who care about the history of the U.S. Uh, game. And um, it was fun to be there. We had a gorgeous day. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of good things going on uh, around the, society, the Golf Heritage Society. And, Burns, talk about the history at Foxburg. Again, as you mentioned, the oldest course in the U.S., continuous. But talk about some of the history that's taken place there. You know what? It's pretty neat. Uh, really, back back way back there was a fellow uh, from uh, the US who uh, visited uh, St Andrews and met this guy named Tom Morris uh, and they got to be somewhat uh, friendly and Tom sent him home with some golf clubs uh, to come back to the US and uh, this gentleman's name was Fox and he was a businessman he had several things going but people wanted to know about these these golf clubs so they put together uh, some holes and then they uh, developed a golf full golf course and uh, became very popular. They started a club and uh, they've continued to this very day uh, as a, uh, uh, a golf club. And, uh, you know, at one time they had one of the first uh, museums for golf history. Uh, it was called the All-American uh, uh, Golf Museum. And the uh, original clubhouse that they had had a fire and burned down. So they built one. It's a big log cabin kind of thing. And it's really like a large home. Uh, in the upstairs, they've got room and room and room of 
antique golf clubs and uh, really from all eras, the really old uh, uh, hickory shafted clubs. They've got a lot of unique uh, things in there as well from the uh, classic golf era. And that's what I like about it. it it's, um, it's a golf course that has seen it all uh, from the very beginning right up to the modern. And when we played the event uh, for the opening of the preservation, Chris, um, you know, we, we played modern. Um, but I forgot to bring the modern, so I had the hickory. So, heck, I was hitting hickory with a modern ball, and I, I was in hog heaven. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Fern, um, we recently lost a legend on the LPGA Tour, Shirley Spork. She was one of the founding members of the LPGA Tour. For people who aren't familiar with her, talk about her career and her legacy. Well, Shirley Spork is, is one of the originals. Uh, Everybody loved her for her uh, fine sense of humor um, and her love of the game and love of people who, who played the game. And we were very blessed, Chris, uh, the Golf Heritage Society, as one of its member benefits, started uh, a Zoom series. Uh, we, we have our board meetings by Zoom. We said, hey, why can't we call some friends who, who could entertain us and educate us? And, and we started doing that. We had the last summer series in the fall and then we just completed the winter series and you know Shirley was the last person of the winter series and when you talk with someone like Shirley Spork she's going to talk about uh, golf and her golf career her friends and her friends in golf but you know um, Shirley Spork talked to us about American history what it was like back in the day to uh, travel and what it was like uh, to be, you know, a professional when the money wasn't great. And you know what um, really stood out was the value of friendships and the value of supporting each other. And uh, it was it was an incredible walk in time for us. We were all mesmerized uh, by by that uh, that interview, and um, it was just a fun day, fun fun event. Vern, you also recently posted about. Pulling out your walking sticks and asked if people knew what a Sunday stick was. Talk about what a Sunday <laughs> stick is. Well, you noticed that. Yeah, it was for fun. Um, they were they were in the uh, bedroom in the corner, and I said, you know, I have to pull those out and highlight them. So I cleaned them up a little bit, took a few photos, put them on Facebook, both the Golf Heritage Society's group page, which is free to the public, and we put a lot of fun things on there, and it's open to the public to post uh, your golf. Uh, uh, stories and collectibles. Well, anyway, Chris, I, I, uh, pulled those, those sticks out and two of them were made by our members and they are exquisite pieces of art. And for the people that are wondering, well, what is a Sunday stick? Well, back in the day, it was forbidden to play golf on Sunday. And those of us who would jones over one day of not playing or thinking about golf, um, had a little walking stick that was shaped in the uh, uh, in, in the way of a mini golf club, and it actually could be used as a, a little uh, mini golf club, usually to putt or chip. So uh, these folks would have a ball in the pocket, and they'd uh, um, wander off into the uh, side areas where uh, no one would be uh, watching them in particular. Drop a ball and <laughs> take a few chips or putts, and uh, that's why it was called a Sunday stick. Burn the golf collectibles market is really exploding now. Talk about 
the things that you are seeing that people are starting to collect? Well, you know, it is going nuts. And you may have seen, your listeners uh, may have heard that uh, set of uh, irons that was used by Tiger Woods uh, set a record uh, for an auction uh, in, in excess of $5 million. And that was just blew, blew us away. Um, and, you know, a lot of these uh, hard to find things, you know, things are, things are important when they're, uh, owned by, uh, someone famous or used in a famous event or very rare, unusual, one of a kind, those sorts of things. But also things that are important for new and young collectors are intimate items, things that are, um, valuable to the individual. First time you played golf with dad or mom. Uh, that scorecard and, and the, the, the ball, of course, for your hole in one, uh, or the first time that you actually, uh, shot par, shot your age. It's amazing, uh, the significance of those items too. So there's economic value and then there's the personal and sentimental value. And I always like to mention that, Chris, because that's a, such an important, uh, part of, uh, uh, golf and golf collecting. I, I, I really, uh, have both uh, types of items myself, not a real expensive collection, but uh, a smattering of um, uh, nice collectibles and uh, uh, a ton of personally important uh, uh, because of who I was with and where I was and uh, those kind of significant uh, moments for me in the game of golf. Burn, just a couple more before I let you go. And we all know about some of the great courses that, that aren't far from Pittsburgh, you know, the Oakmonts and the Latros, but there are some really great courses right there in Pittsburgh for people that are coming to the area. Talk about some of those courses that they should be sure to check out. Sure. You know, the, the all-time favorite is the Muni at Finley Park. Um, we now call it the Bob, named after Bob O'Connor, uh, one of our past mayors. Um, and uh, that's a nice track of, we, we go between having it as a nine-hole course uh, that's a little longer, using the longer holes for the people that want to play modern, but it's a heck of a course uh, to play the older uh, clubs. And I uh, encourage uh, the staff there to have hickory sets and balls that people can experience the old course because it's 1892. Uh, that's a that's a real treat uh, as well. So, um, you know, of course, I like uh, some of the, uh, accessible country clubs and you know some of the munis a little further east is uh, Murraysville it's a nice little track for people who visit and um, uh, you know those are just a couple uh, that I would name uh, Chris I hope I can mention that I uh, would like folks to come to our website uh, golfheritage.org and uh, see all the very uh, entertaining interesting and opportunities to learn about the old game uh, I was looking at our website uh, uh, just before coming on, and uh, we put up a, uh, a special area of um, uh, golf subgroups, and that's what we're doing now. We're going online uh, together to start subgroups for people to come on once or twice a month uh, to talk about their new finds. Well, if you go on our website, golfheritage.org, and look at the uh, trophies and medals, it will blow you away. It will take you places uh, all around the world who had what, who won what, and the bling is incredible. So it was just something that was, uh, for me, uh, just a, a, a thrilling experience, even though I have uh, have a few things. It's always nice to uh, see what the other guy has. So 
uh, yeah, so thanks for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. No, we're glad to have you. Remind everybody again, Bern, about the fall convention and then the, the June 27th show that you talked about at the top. Latrobe uh, Country Club is a, an hour east uh, of Pittsburgh, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, it'll have a trade show. It'll have a uh, heritage golf event. We call it that because some folks will play modern. Some folks will play classics like uh, Palmer, Nicholas, and Player. And some folks will play um, Hickory Stick. So um, we uh, call that a heritage event. And uh, then in uh, later in the year, in September 21 through 24, we'll have a trade show. We'll have our golf uh, competitive event. We'll have a lot of fun in fellowship and trading and what we call room trading, visit each other's rooms and seeing who brought what. And, uh, you know, we'll have our Hall of Fame induction. That's September 21 through 24 in Indianapolis, I believe, at the Wyndham West. So we're very excited. The program will be very strong. Uh, I believe we're going to uh, highlight art and photography. Um, and uh, I'm sure that the USDA will uh, uh, again visit and produce a very valuable uh, experience like they did last year. Well, Bern, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show. Always, always educational, always fun having you uh, as a part of the segment. Uh, you, you have so much great, so many great stories and so much great history uh, to share with us, particularly for for uh, someone like me from Western Pennsylvania, we get to hear a lot about what's going on up there. I can't thank you enough for sharing those stories and uh, letting us know about the great events you have coming up. Well, thanks very much, Chris. It's always a pleasure, and there, there's lots going on. So uh, uh, um, hopefully folks will check us out, and uh, we'll come back another time if you like. So thank you. Absolutely. Again. Have a good evening. All right. Take care, Vern. That's Bye the now. great Vern Bernacki. Again, he is the president of the Golf Heritage Society. Golfheritage.org is the website. June 27th up in Latrobe. Boy, doesn't that sound like a great event? How could it not be? Right there in Arnie's backyard and then the fall convention in Indy, September 21 to 24. So uh, for someone like me, if you love the game, there are two places that I, I think you need to be for uh, 22. So great having Vern as part of the show. Look forward to catching up with him again a little bit later on in the year. Before I get to my next guest, Megan Yonkman, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel. Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide 
the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back in Next on the Tee with me is LPGA Top 50 instructor and the Director of Instruction at Beth Page Golf Courses up in New York, Megan Yonkman. Let me remind you about Megan's background. She captained her high school team to -to back-to-back state championships. She played her college golf at Ohio State and then transferred to the University of Toledo, where she lettered in 1996. She became an LPGA Class A teaching professional in 2001. In September of 2011, Megan was appointed the head coach of the State of Florida team in the PGA Junior League Golf World Series. Held here in Atlanta at TPC Sugarloaf in Duluth, the site of this week's Mitsubishi Electric Classic over on the Champions Tour. Megan received the U.S. Kids Golf Top 50 Teachers Award. She spent nine years at River Hills Country Club just outside of Tampa, Florida, as the Director of Instruction there. She moved over to Temple Terrace Golf and Country Club as their Director of Instruction for eight-plus years. She is now the Director of Instruction at the Golf Channel Academy at Beth Page State Park in New York, and I'm honored to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Megan, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. Great to be back. Good to see you. Megan, we talked a little bit about this last time, but for most of us, it takes us 10 years just to get bad at playing golf. You picked it up almost overnight and became the captain of your high school team. So talk about how was it that you were able to pick up the game of golf so quickly? Well, honestly, it really wasn't quickly. <laughs> I was I was a sophomore in high school, but so I think this might, you know, to our audience, it might it might really resonate because everybody wants to get good really quickly. Um, but also to some of our parents who have who have children that are starting later and decide that they want to play golf, you know, whether it be in high school or college. But I I I always go back to this. It it doesn't matter your talent. It matters your work ethic. And that is what I always fell back on um, prior to picking up the game. And I picked it up in, oh, my gosh, I was, it was just before my sophomore year of high school. I had, I had a plethora of years with other sports and, you know, succeeding in those, either as a varsity athlete, finally, um, at a young age or, you know, I, I had travel ball in other sports. I was a skier, a downhill racer. And so I had I had something called work ethic, which which was kind of built in uh, when I decided to play golf. Uh, golf was not a sport. I might have had a talent with hand eye coordination, but golf definitely challenged me so much that I, I, I think I was the worst on my team my first year, which is, you know, probably um, for a lot of us. But it was definitely something I wasn't scared to work hard for. And. I guess I guess I want to say that you know my my family and and my parents and my household didn't really have feelings. It was uh, it was well if you want this this is what it takes you know if you want that this is what it takes. There wasn't anything that said that you can't do something. So I think that 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 really helped as well. And Megan, to what you said a moment ago, travel ball, other sports. You know, we live in a world now where travel baseball, travel softball. Um, but it sounds like you were a very well-rounded athlete. When, when for, for those of us who have children that are becoming interested in the game of golf, is it better to specialize and really focus on golf? 
or is it better to let them play lots of different sports and, and get involved so that um, it makes them a well-rounded athlete? You know, having that experience as a junior golfer myself and as a junior athlete myself, um, now it has served me very well to give to, to give some really good advice that kids in general need to be involved in a lot of activities as a young person. You know, whether it be the arts, whether it be sports, um, whether it be music, something that they can, you know, experience a lot of things that they could find a little bit of passion in. And learning a little bit about that, uh, that phrase work ethic. So I think that kids should always be involved in, you know, in, in a lot of sports yet still have a, a fulfilled family life where they're not just running around to sports every single night of the week. Uh, once you get to a certain age, you do need to specialize. If you've got, if you've got goals, uh, in certain areas, but I have a, plenty of athletes that, that are, you know, of that age in high school where they really need to focus if they want golf because that's what we're talking about here. So if they want golf, I still think it's really important to have an outlet. So maybe playing another sport like tennis, you know, something for the school, something that is fun. And if you're not a multi-athlete, you know, and in, in, in a lot of multi-sports, then perhaps having a different passion, something that you really enjoy as a hobby. Uh, but clearly defining that, you know, that this is my priority, golf is my priority, but I, I do have these other sports. You know, through development, Chris, we're we're talking about kids we're talking about you know physical development as well so these other sports develop other areas of the body you know other muscle groups uh what did they say in the last nfl draft i think 89 percent of the picks were multi-sport athletes in high school and only 20 or uh, i i would say 11 percent were specialists in their sport so only 11 percent were only football what does that say that says a lot you know, for, for the development of the junior athlete. Um, I think other sports teach you about, um, not only the work ethic, but team dynamics. And, you know, golf isn't necessarily a team dynamic. It is through college. It is through high school, but still you're playing alone out there, like all of us know. So you really need to have a little bit of the best of both worlds. Um, you know, to, to be your best in the sport. Megan, switching gears a little bit. You've been named an LPGA Top 50 Instructor for 2022 and 23. What does that designation mean to you? That is a lot to unpack. (laughs) That was something else. I mean, I I think I share that with everybody else who was chosen on that list. And, you know, for me, it's got a lot of significance. I mean, there's there's first and foremost being... being, Let's just go back to when they called us up, you know, for the top 50 award. And, you know, when I'm standing in that line of those 50 women, I mean, these are some of the women were some of the women that I have looked up to for years. And here I was um, with them. And that that's just extremely humbling. And it's just it's surreal. Um, second of all, you know, you look back at all the years that I've been doing this, which is about, you know, 22 years of strong dedication to teaching and growing as a teacher just so that I could be better every single day for a student. Um, the reward I, I, it's not needed. It's not needed, but it is certainly appreciated. And third of all, you know, a really iconic moment for me, and I don't know if I share this with anyone else, but 
the woman who gave me the award when I received it uh, was Nancy Henderson, and she's our chief teaching um, officer at the LPGA now. But back when I first started the LPGA um, journey, she was a woman who was at um, LPGA International as a general manager, I believe. And she was just running around. But I got to see somebody like me that was in that position. And I didn't know women back then could do that. I mean, obviously, I was in my early 20s. But I didn't really know that. So when I saw her walking around and and in control of, of her department, and she was very professional, I knew that I could do anything. So receiving that award and having her hand that to me and to shake her hand was a huge moment for me. So it, you know, this, this, this means a lot to me on, on so many levels. So Megan, let's take that a step further, right? Growth on the women's side of the sport. We're seeing more money mm-hmm. now coming into the LPGA. We've seen Susie yep. Whaley, the president of the PGA of America. We're seeing a lot of really wonderful things. The Augusta National Women's Amateur thing. You talk about things that you never would have guessed might have happened on the women's side of the sport years ago. Now is really exploding. Talk about the growth of the game for the women's side and the things that you you want to be involved with from here on out. Well, that's a really uh, great thing to ask me my perspective on that. You know, when you look at the industry itself, uh, you know, the industry that our audience is looking at, of course, is television. And we've got the tour, and that is one division of the LPGA. Uh, but a, a host of our, uh, a majority of our other membership is what you see in the industry, your head golf professionals, your general managers, your teachers, you see your merchandisers, you see everybody that you see every single day when you're coming to the golf course. So you're not only seeing the men now, you're seeing the women leading. You know, you're seeing them have greater opportunities. They're on the board. They're not just the wife at the member of the club. Um, it's, it's a pretty unique perspective because I said, okay, so, so the LPGA as a whole, and, and I just kind of, if I can use this time to, to kind of educate from my platform is that there is the LPGA tour and then there's the LPGA club professional membership. And the club professional membership is actually almost like earning a degree. It's about a three year program if you continue, you know, on time. And you are trained, we're predominantly focused on the teaching, and the PGA kind of gives a little bit of everything. I may also have a, a an industry professional uh, management program, but we also have our own. And now, I've uh, since 2011, I've been fortunate to be on the global education team, which means our, we teach our teachers, right, our teachers that are coming through the program, and our our membership program called the Teacher Education Program. And our global education team is a, is a, is a very special group of, of, of teachers that are, that are host to evaluations and teaching our candidates that are coming through. So when I see, you know, these, these amazing women coming through, it gives me a whole new perspective of what's coming up in the future for the LPGA. Because now also we have, uh, let's take your tour player. 
and they are ready for the next step in their career. And what would that be? That would be teaching. That would be, you know, being out in the public eye, influencing other players and so forth. So they actually have also to get their membership, which is a class A uh, membership with the LPGA. And so they come through our program as well. So you are seeing now tour players that, you know, have the biomechanics uh, background and the training and everything else that they've been through to actually be some of the best teachers in the world. And I, I really think that that hands-on LPGA product that we're, that, you know, that we're producing and, um, these candidates that continue to succeed through our program are really touching the lives of, of golfers every single day. And that also is a huge component to the strength of the LPGA tour as well. So Megan, talk about what it takes to be a class A LPGA professional. It's not like you just go in there and you have a weekend clinic and now the next thing you know, you're a class A professional. Talk about what goes into becoming someone at that level. Um, well, you, you originally start out, you know, as an apprentice member. You, you join the LPGA as an apprentice member. Um, and then after your apprenticeship is over, which includes, uh, learning about the history of the LPGA, all the kind of, uh, beginning stages and also passing player ability tests. Um, that, that's very important getting in. Um, after, after that, then you've succeeded through that. You come into level one. You have programming, um, that gets you ready for obviously the next level, which gets heavily into the biomechanics of the swing, et cetera. And then you have your level three programming that, um, takes you through quite a bit more of that. Obviously, marketing your own programs, budgets, et cetera learning how to run your own, you know, your own operation and learning how to, to facilitate another's operation. And once you come through those level two, there's testing involved, uh, teaching in front of the education team. And then level three, there's higher, you know, higher uh, requirements that you have to complete to attain your class A uh, membership. So once you attain your class A, then you are a full-fledged member of the LP. Megan, let's switch it up a little bit. I want to go back into uh, your career, but you've had an opportunity to be at some of the most iconic golf courses in our country. Uh, Inverness has hosted several majors. Recently, it held the Solheim Cup a few years ago. It became the home course for the men's and women's golf programs at uh, your alma mater, the University of Toledo. Talk about getting to spend some time there and, uh, and playing that golf course. Well, this past year with the Solheim Cup there, boy, what a beautiful establishment. What they did for that Solheim Cup was just phenomenal, especially given the property. It's one of those very small, quaint properties, but then you have this unbelievable golf course on, uh, on there. And it is, it, it just brought back a lot of memories for me, obviously. <laughs> I grew up, uh, in Toledo. Uh, my home courses were in Vernis as well as Highland Meadows, where they play the Marathon Classic every year in June or early July. Um, so those, you know, having having those experiences at LPGA courses through through growing up with just uh, with just happenstance, it was definitely a privilege um, to think I was just on swim team all those years up until age 14 and not paying attention to golf at all um, is kind of crazy for me. But those 
you know, having uh, seeing those players, I can't tell you watching the Solheim Cup players. I mean, I've played golf, but that kind of golf is just phenomenal uh, to watch. And then the spirit, obviously, of everybody watching them as well, um, coming up the home stretch. And those holes are so, so dynamic and they're tough. They're shot making. You know, I kind of can reference that, of course, having exposure now with Bethpage. They're not only all five of their golf courses, but especially Bethpage Black. They're shot-making golf courses, so you really have to, you know, especially the pros. I mean, that's why, obviously, they have championships there. You've, you've really got to be a player to do well. So, Lev, let's, let's take that a step further. Being there at Bethpage, how many people like, you know, someone like me, I'm a, I'm a 12 handicap, think that they can go out there on the Bethpage Black course Hey, you know, I can play from the tips. Let me see what these guys, this can't be that bad. And I got to imagine by the time they, they trudge their way off of 18, have been beaten to a pulp because the black course is no joke. But uh, we all think that we're above that and we can all take it on. How many people have you run across that uh, thought they could do it and then ended up, uh, let's just say, not as enthusiastic by the time they got done? <laughs> I always say that that's why we take your picture by that warning sign before you play. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Chris, to, your, to answer your question, it's everybody. Everybody. I mean, why wouldn't you go into a course thinking, oh, I'm different? You know, no, I I play this certain type of play. You know, I shoot 15 over. Usually I'm, I'm still going to play that game here. But I think that, you know... Uh, with the more, with the tougher golf courses, with the with the layouts like that, again, it's a shot making course. I mean, I was an idiot the first time I played black. Uh, I had a caddy, and he would I would get into the fescue, which is the higher grass. It's really clammy. It really grabs your ball. Um, and even knowing that, I would want to hit it out of it. And he said, "No, nope, no, nope, we're going to punch a nine iron." I said, "No way." I'm going to hit my hybrid out of it. No, you're not. And he just hand me my club and I'd have to trust him and thank God I did. But if you don't have a caddy, you know, also the, so it's the shot making. Um, you've got to be able to place your ball. You don't just because you can hit your three wood 200 yards. Let's just say I'm throwing at numbers. Um, the 150 shot is a better shot up to the plateau. Then you get on the green, but everybody says, well, it's only 200 yards I'm gonna just hit my three way. You can't do that. And I you know, it everything's above you, you're hitting into greens that are above you, you're hitting into greens that are several yards below you, so there's a lot of slope. Um and the fatigue level. You're walking that course. So that round there is typically not a four hour round. I would say a five hour round minimum. Um I had friends in, this is a great example because this is about just recreational players, but I had some friends in last year at the end of the season. They flew in for the day, played golf, we went to dinner, the next day they fly home. So when they were here, we went and played, and I tried to explain, let's just have a good day, let's have fun, and they had a great time. But we were coming up 15, and the gentleman in my group looked at me, and he said, what hole are we on? <laughs> and I said, I mean, that's how lost he was. And I said, well, we're on 15, silly. And he said, God, I feel like I'm on my 28th hole today. <laughs> you know, 
And our caddies typically walk about five miles. We were on our eighth. Wow. Coming up 18. Wow. Yeah. A pretty, and they weren't just potting golf balls. They were full time caddying. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty, it's, it's a real experience. You gotta, you know, I would suggest getting in a little bit of shape if you're coming in from out of town. We have some regulars that play it all the time, but it's, you know, you gotta go in and just enjoy the experience rather than trying to play at it. You know, you gotta play with it. Kind of like the wind. And you mentioned the famous warning sign. I read that no one is really sure who originally put that sign up. Is that true or is that just a legend? I would love to have that answer for you. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> That's a good question. And by our next show, I'll have, uh, I'll have an answer for you. <laughs> um, we don't hear an awful lot about the other courses there at Beth Page, the red, blue, green, yellow courses. Talk about those. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because honestly, the red course is the course pretty close to black. It's got a great layout. I mean, it's, it's tough, but you get to take a cart. So that's a whole nother experience when you get to take a cart. Again, New Yorkers and people that come in love to walk. Um, our courses are very walking friendly except black, but, uh, the, the red course has a great layout. It's, it's probably the second hardest course. Um, third hardest course, so that's a tie between blue and I would say green. Uh, the green course was our original course. It was the only course that was there. Uh, for they decided to make it, you know, make the state park, you know, into a more golf friendly, um, facility. So the green is, it's just a lot more wide open. It's a little bit flatter. Uh, the blue is incredibly undulated. I mean, you could be, I don't know, 100 yards up, 100 yards down on a lot of holes, you know, 50 yards here and there. So there's there's a lot of undulation on the blue course. And then um, our final course is the yellow. It's our most player-friendly course. In fact, I would love to turn that into a, well, have an influence to turn it into more of a family course. It's definitely a family-friendly course. Not short by any means, but it's it's just so fun. It's player friendly. Our juniors love it. Um, even our competitive juniors love that course of yellow. They often use that as a nine hole course. So we've got front and back, um, front and back to use for our players. We always have a nine hole course every single day, um, that you can get a ticket for. So that's, that's about it in order. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great place to be. I tell you that. Megan, I want to get a couple of playing lessons before I let you go. And as you know, most <laughs> of us struggle off the tee. You know, we're slicers. Um, we know that it's the path of the face that, that generates that slice, but we still can't seem to figure out how to square it up. What are some things that you work with your students on in order to get that club face square at the moment of impact? That's a great question. You know, the first thing that that I want to mention here is a slice is a slice, a fade is a fade. So first you have to determine what exactly do you have. A fade just just uh, drifts off a little bit from the from the path, you know, and falls a little bit right of your intended target. Um, a slice basically has a turn signal on it and it takes it out of play. Um, it, and I'm speaking from a right-handed golfer. Um, obviously, we'll switch that up for a left-handed golfer, but. For a right-handed player, you know, if that ball is, has a turn signal on it and it's, and it's really taking you out of play, 
that's something you really need to get to the range and 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 work on and i would suggest that you go to your you go to your golf professional get get videoed have them really look at you it could be anything it could be something simple in your hand position on the handle you could have a a weak grip um again right-handed player if your hands are too far left on the handle we need to get them more a little bit what we call stronger to the right um less on top of the handle and it, it could be something as sim- simple as that. Now, a true fade, I mean, we want to move the ball left of the target and have it fade into the target. But if you're a true slicer, I know you're getting up on that tee box and you're aiming even further and further left when you play. Um, typical slicers, though, are those that don't practice very much, so they haven't really taken that time Just step back, maybe take a week and work on it. Um, so we'd want to turn you into more of a fader of the ball. You know, it's not it's not a bad thing to move the ball left to right or right to left. A lot of players think, oh, I've got to hit it straight. Well, you really don't. You you know, a playable ball flight, three playable ball flights. There's a straight ball flight. There's a fade, which starts left of the target line and fades down to the target. And then there's a draw, a healthy draw that starts right at the target line, and it draws left and drops left of the target line into the target. So there's three ball flights. Nicholas was a fader of the ball. You know, the best the best players all have their their go-to ball flights. Um that's for their swing, but they can create other ball flights. So that's that's just some things that you should think about if you're a slicer of the ball for sure. Megan, another area that we struggle with is just chipping around the greens. If we're five, ten yards off the green getting the ball to where we want it to be by the hole becomes very challenging. I mean, there's lots of different clubs you can, you can use, you know, where, where do we put the ball in our stance? We hear lots of different uh, versions of where that needs to go. And then club selection. Talk about what you instruct your folks to do in order to, and just, I'm just talking about a simple a chip shot. We don't have a bunker. We don't have anything in our way, but we're trying to get the ball close to the hole. So we, you know, we're not two or three putting. How do we chip and what what are the things that you teach from club selection, ball position, and stance? Great, great question. Um, you know, from a short shot off the green, first of all, rule of thumb, the lower that the ball travels, the better. So if we can keep the ball on the ground, the longer we can keep the ball on the ground, the better. So if you really are, you know, you're you're just off the green and you've got fairway lie into the green and the ball's going to travel on the fairway to the green. Go ahead and putt it. Absolutely. Or you want to use a low lofted club, um, something like an eight iron or a seven iron to bump the ball a little bit. We also call it a bump and run because it bumps up on the green just a little bit and spends most of its time running to the hole. Uh, that's something that we want to think about when you're stepping up to a chip shot. Of course, the further away that you get from a green, the more higher lofted club that you choose is better. Um, but if we are standing close, you know, I, I'm going to say just to make this very simple is that we never, if, if you're in your stroke and you're in your stance, just stand as natural as possible. Go ahead and align. You're, you're going to hear open your stance, place the ball in the back. That is all great. And you can learn that from your teaching professional or you can watch some videos online and kind of tinker with that. But just to start out, the first thing that you have to do is learn to have a putting stroke with your iron. 
So if that makes sense, Chris, at all, yeah. you're going to take a lower lofted iron and you're going to set it next to the ball. Obviously, you're going to stand close to the ball, have a, you know, your feet are going to be a little bit closer together. But in our putting stroke, we really don't use your wrists, right? So right. in a chipping stroke, you're also going to not use your wrists. If you need to get your wrists out of that stroke, you're definitely going to want to maybe take your putting grip and actually hit the ball. That will teach you how to keep your wrist out of it. Um, something else you want to think about, maybe it's keeping the handle of the club again for a right-handed player. Keep the handle of the club to the left of your left hip and make your stroke. And the stroke shouldn't be really any bigger um, to start with anyway. It shouldn't be any longer than your putting stroke, That the natural putting stroke that you would have for the distance away from the target that you are. Wow. Great advice. Thank you very much for that. Maggie, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Sure thing. Uh, MeganYoungsman.com is always a great place to go, but also BethPageGolfCourse.com. You can click on Academy. We've got a lot of great programs. If you want to fly in for the day, have a couple hours with one of our instructors, including myself. Um, you can certainly fly in and then take a round on the golf course. What a great day that would be for you. Uh, we've also got Instagram. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. Any of our instructors have their own Facebook pages. Uh, we also have uh, Instagram. I've got Instagram, so you can look me up on that. Uh, there's a lot of fun golf content that I like to post and share. And also, um, for sure, you can. Uh, there is a website called birdiespot.com. We've got a lot of our videos on there from a lot of our instructors that are at the academy and other instructors that I would encourage you to go to uh, to get your instruction before you'd ever YouTube anything that you'd want to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Megan, thank you so much. I always have a lot of fun when you're a part of the show. I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. Oh, Chris, thanks for having me. I can't wait to do it again. Take care, Megan. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. That is the great Megan Yunkman. Y-O-U-N-K-M-A-N is the spelling of her last name. You, you heard, you know, follow her on Instagram, follow her on Twitter. Uh, and those two playing lessons, I mean, particularly that shipping thing, I am looking forward to taking that out to the golf. I'm going to put my earbuds in. I'm going to re-listen to that part of the segment and I'm going to be practicing that because that's, that's some really solid advice. I got my, annual golf trip with my buddies coming up and uh, I got a feeling I'm going to be chipping it a lot closer to the hole and I hope they didn't hear it so they don't. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Evan Schiller, Dave Stockton Jr., Dr. Bern Bernacki, and Megan Yachman for joining me tonight. Next week scheduled to join me are finally our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. We'll be back on the show. Seems like forever since TP's been here. Champions Tour Pro Scott Verplank will be back, as will golf artist Linda Harto. Plus, our great friend and my favorite author of all time, Keith Hirschland, will be here. So, folks, it's going to be a great show. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co. Audio Boom, Player.fm, and Podbean. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net, to see what our upcoming guest schedule looks like. 
Plus, we have links on there to our recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got two hours or 20 minutes, we've got some great content on there for you. Folks, I can't thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I know you've got a lot of golf podcasts to choose from. I am very thankful that you continue to make Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.